welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Whether you're single, whether you're dating, whether you're married, or whether you've been divorced, or whether you've been married for hundreds and hundreds of years, or you never want to get married at all, or whether you're married and you wished you were single, every, every one of you here... That poem, this poem has relevance for you today. And so uh, over the last few weeks, we've talked about different topics. First, we recognize that God is the author of sexuality, and God is the author of beauty and attraction, and that it's good news to be physically attracted to someone, and that we shouldn't be afraid of that, that that's actually good. The second thing we've talked about is three ways, or are three ways, that love flourishes in relationships. Do you guys remember that talk where we talked about what the foxes said? No, we talked about foxes, for those of you that were here. What, what were some of those three things? Can I get any? There are three R's. It was sponsored by the letter R. Do you remember this talk? Restraint, risk, resolve. There we go. We, we talked about three different ways that in any relationship, love will flourish when we, when we practice restraint, when we practice risk, and when we practice resolve. And then last week, Bill had an amazing talk on godliness and singleness and uh, different levels or dimensions of intimacy that all of us in have capacity for. And how sometimes sexuality is just a piece of who we are as a person becomes the dominant um, identifier for who we are, especially in our culture today. That we make sexuality the primary identity of who we are. And sex experienced or realized becomes the primary way, primary way we identify ourselves in relationships. And that is very hindering. That hinders other levels of intimacy that we have, not just with spouses, but other people as well. You with me? Okay, so let's jump in. This morning, I have one goal, to remind us and paint a picture of all that God has intended for human sexuality. So the goal this morning is to paint a beautiful picture that scripture reveals of what God intended for us in sex. So this is going to be explicit. So if you have little ones here and you don't want to have conversations after this talking about things that I've said, you might want to take them to children's ministry. Or if you have brought them here and you want to have these conversations, I think that's great. So we're going to get into the the details of scripture because it's in scripture. So my hope today is simply to remind us, but really to paint a beautiful picture of what sex was designed to be in the first place. And so my hope is that for all of us here, we can begin to identify the real thing. That we would be able to become good storytellers of why we need to tell our culture and our society about what real sex looks like and what real sex is about. And my my other hope is that we can begin to spot the counterfeits that we have in our culture. Are you with me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, nice and, man, I'm, I'm going to have fun today. Um, and so uh, let's, let's just jump in. So we need to understand that the sex is a gift and not a curse. And in our culture, we are exposed to pornographic images, uh, sexual images from Hollywood and all sorts of media. And it's no wonder that most of us have exper- haven't experienced what we're going to talk about today. And I, I know for the most part that sex is actually a bat- battlefield. And our sexuality is a place of discontentment. And um, I want to share that for, for those of you that are debating whether or not godliness is the way or God's way is right, um, I just want to challenge you to challenge the culture that we live in. And, the, and whether or not you believe culture is winning in your own life, my hope is that you can walk away freed today. 
That's my hope, is that we experience liberation together as the body. Um, And so, I'd like to suggest uh, a couple more intros. Without a positive vision of sex within marriage, the commands to wait to have sex um, make no sense at all. So unless our view of sexuality is good, the, the command to wait will not make sense in our culture. And what we have for the most part is a church that has remained silent or a church that has simply stood on the mountaintop shouting, thou shalt not. And that doesn't help us when we have these desires since we're young ones, uh, these passionate sexual desires. And so there are two assumptions that I'm bringing in that are foundational for this morning. The first is this. Number one, that God is good. So the number two is sex is good. <laughs> So two foundational assumptions. I'm going to paint the picture for point number two. But our view of God is directly, directly impacts our view of sexuality. So let's jump in. Genesis chapter 1. God is good and his commands are for our best interest. So we'll, we'll read some uh, Genesis of where this whole, this whole thing comes from. And then we'll go into um, Song of Songs. Song of Solomon. Solomon's Song of Songs. It's a mouthful. It's technically Solomon's Song of Songs, just so you know. Okay, verse 26, God has uh, created the, the universe in six days. And on the sixth day, verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill all the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So Genesis 1 reveals that male and female are created in the image of God. And we are called to rule over all of creation. That that's what we do together as male and female. And it says that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And there's only one way that I know that we can increase in number. And that is that we have to have sex to do it. So in the beginning, God created male and female to have sex to procreate. Are you with me? Basic point number one. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2. So this is another creation account. Okay? So account number one, Genesis chapter 1. This is another kind of story of creation. It's zeroed in on Adam and the garden and what happens. And it says, um, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So God creates Adam, and um, then skip down to verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So Adam is alone. God runs into a problem. Adam is not designed to be alone. And God says, I'll make a helper suitable for him, or a suitable helper. And the word helper is azar. Say azar. And azar means strengthener or rescuer in in Hebrew language. And it is a, a word used throughout the Psalms to describe what God is like. If you read David's Psalm, he says, God is our rescuer and our strengthener. It's azar. And that word, there are different uh, words that the author of Genesis could have used. It's used to describe an equal, not a subordinate at this point. And that's important to understand for what God designed creation to be in the first place, that we were designed for mutuality in our relationships between male and female. We were not designed to rule over each other. And so Adam goes, uh, it says that God begins, uh, he takes, I'm sorry, he puts Adam to sleep. 
he, he first of all looks for some animals to make Adam a suitable helper, but the cats and dogs aren't good enough. And so then he causes Adam to go to sleep. And uh, it says, verse 21, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man wakes up and says, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and his Xbox and is united to his wife. (laughs) Yeah. Um, remember resolve. If that's an issue of this, you know, a fight for you guys, tell them about it. No, um, and is united to his wife or bonded to his wife. We're going to talk about this next week. Um, and they become one flesh. And Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. So the picture we have of Genesis chapter 2, before sin enters into the world, we, we recognize that we were sexual before we were sinful. Are you with me? So sex is good, and we were sexual before we were sinful. God creates woman, and notice that Adam doesn't actually give her a name. I'm going to talk about this next week as well, and this is really important for just some basic theology here. But he, he doesn't name her. Instead, he recognizes something more powerful, and he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Where I, um, what he is saying in Hebrew is, where I am weak, she's strong. Where she is strong, I am weak. Where she is weak, I am strong. I was just wondering if the women caught that. That was a play on words. Anyways, um, and, uh, and then he says, she shall be called Isha, is the Hebrew word, for she was taken out of Ish. And then, um, and this is the w- why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The word for one is Echad. Say Echad. Echad. And this is a very mysterious word, and it means uh, the idea is a oneness made up of several different parts and members. And that the idea behind this is that two people, two different people become one flesh. And it's tied to sexuality. We're going to spend more time on that topic next week where we talk about how sex um, begins to be shaped by our culture. But also that the act of sex alone is powerful and mysterious and it's not designed to be used outside of anything other than a covenantal marriage relationship between a man and a woman, okay? So this is part one of sex. We recognize that sex is good, that God is good, and that we are sexual before we are sinful. And I wanna say, um, so we have this picture of, of sexuality in Genesis chapter two where a man and a woman are naked and they felt no shame. They had no concept of non-nakedness. Okay, so there's this picture of perfect, authentic human relationships and sexuality, and it looks like a perfect relationship between a man and a woman, that there's perfect intimacy, and that it involves this mysterious sex that, that is far more mysterious than just parts, and excuse me for being specific, and just penetration, but it's far more mysterious than that. And that the perfect image of, the, is this, uh, of, this, this, um, uh, of sexuality in Genesis is that humanity have perfect relationship to God and humanity has perfect relationship with each other and creation. Are you with me? So that's, that's the standard. And what we're talking about here this morning is the standard that, that the scriptures teach us. Now, so the only real sex that takes place is within marriage, I want to say. 
Did we say this? Yeah, the only real sex that takes place is within marriage. Sex outside of marriage is counterfeit. Anything outside of marriage is simply not sexual enough. And I'm going, to talk, I'm going to make that point today based on Song of Songs. Um, the problem is we are obsessed and infatuated with counterfeits in our culture today. We love the counterfeits of sexuality. Um, how many of you, let's start off with this. How many of you know how uh, uh, counterfeit currency experts are trained? For those of you that don't know, the way that someone's trained in counterfeit currency is that they're, they're immersed in the real thing. They never show them the counterfeit. They only show them the real thing so that when they touch or hear the sound or look at a counterfeit bill, they will know immediately because all they've seen in life is the real currency. My hope today is to give you the real thing through the Song of Songs. But one more point, and we'll talk about counterfeits. Let me explain to you how obsessed we are. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Keep the picture down for a moment. How many of you have experienced the wonder and awe of the Grand Canyon? Was it up there already? Really? <laughs> Alyssa? What? A, I said Grand Canyon. Man. Just kidding. <laughs> Shucks. Um, so you, how many of you went there in the summer and can tell us the experience you had when you pull out of the car into the, the, the warm heat of the dry desert, and you can hear the wind blowing through the canyon, and just the majestic experience, the awe experience of witnessing God's creation? How many, or you were there in the winter, and it was cold, and the breeze was there, and you could see the different colors from the sunset. How many of you have experienced the beauty and majesty of the Grand Canyon? I want the hands up. Okay, let's look at the picture. Was this what you experienced, for those of you that were able to see it? It's absolutely beautiful, right? Just you could see the canyons in the fall, the discoloration, the roads and the rocks and the way the the Colorado River shaped just this beautiful landscape that we see as kind of carved out by God's fingerprints. Do you know what I'm talking about? How many of you know that that is not the Grand Canyon? A few of us. That's the Cars Land at, at Disneyland. I got some of you. The thing is this, most of us can't tell the difference between real sex and the imitation. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I've fooled you. (laughs) Because it sounds similar. It might even feel good. It might look pleasing, but it's not the real thing. So, Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 5. Let's get into it. And like I said, this is going to be a fun reading this morning. And my wife's sick, and she's not here, and I'm kind of happy because um, we're talking about sex. And every time she sits here, I get distracted. So, <laughs> uh, am I, I'm the pastor, and I'm giggling about sex jokes already in the sex talk. Daughters of Jerusalem, chapter 5, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5, chapter 3. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This is the second time that this is used in the Song of Songs. And what we have here is every time that this is used, this phrase, do not awaken or do not arouse love until it can be fulfilled, is a better translation, um, there's, they're practicing restraint. And when they practice restraint, What happens is what follows is a new level of intimacy and blessing in their relationship. Verse 6 is going to begin to describe 
a wedding processional. So that we're going to see their wedding right now. So verse 6. This is her talking, remember. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? Because I don't have an app to use. I'm flipping my Bible. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? Like a column of smoke. This is a direct reference to Exodus when, G- when God would lead the Israelites through um, a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke in the day. And it, it, the image is that God is leading this couple to their wedding. That God is providing this couple. So let's keep reading. Perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant. Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. I'm not too sure what terrors of the night are. Um, In fact, many uh, theologians are quite confused. But the picture we have, remember this is a poem, is that she's describing what happens when she's being married. What what the wedding symbolizes is, is that Solomon is full of safety and security and comfort. That she is secure on her wedding day. You with me? Okay, cool. King Solomon made for himself a carriage. He made it uh, of wood from Lebanon. Its, its posts he made of silver, a base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple. Its interior uh, inlaid with love. It's describing what he's designed specifically for this wedding. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look. Your daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. So we get this picture of this poetic imagery of, of Solomon's wedding day marrying his bride. And then chapter 4 happens, and we are now escorted into the honeymoon suite. And this will be the first time they're going to have sex. And this is what our talk is going to discuss. Six Different pictures, I'm going to point out here, of, of how God intended sex to be, okay? Six pictures. We're going to read this together. And so we have, we are escorted into the, the embassy suites or the Holiday Inn, depending on where you celebrated your honeymoon. Um, and if you're here, oh, man, I'm just, I'm just trying to stop myself from saying what I want to say. Um, no, no, it's good. We're gonna... It's good, it's good. <laughs> if you're here and you're single and you want to check out because we're going to talk about wedding and sex, I just want to encourage you to press in. Um, so here we go. So here, okay, here we have, he is, they're now alone. And it's, they've been, they've been do you remember, like things were getting heated up and then they practiced restraint. And then things were getting heated up and then they practiced restraint. And so here they are after their beautiful wedding and they're entering into their bridal suite and we're given a picture of what's going to happen. This is sexuality at its best. All right? The man's, this is the man speaking. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your eyes behind your veil, doves are a symbol of peace and fidelity and faithfulness. So he's saying, I look, so remember, this isn't clinical language. So if we want to take this literally, it's not a literal, like, if you try to throw, your eyes look like the veil of doves. It just won't work, especially as we move forward in this. But he's speaking poetically. He's saying that he sees peace in her eyes. And so he starts with his head. You're beautiful, my darling. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. But soft with light through yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill. This envious moon is sick and pale and grief. That thou art made a far more fair than she. Anyways, you're welcome. 
You're welcome. Your teeth are like the flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. In other words, she's got white teeth. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. She has all of her teeth. (laughs) Brothers, on your wedding night, make sure you affirm her dental work. (laughs) Where are we? Oh, this is good. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Built with courses of stone, on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle, and browse among the lilies. This is the word of God speaking. Amen is right. So here you have a guy who's experiencing his wife after practicing restraint, after they get married for the first time. And the picture is he doesn't touch her at all. In fact, for 10 verses, he's going to, point number one, sex is romantic. He's going to speak over her with romance. He's going to speak words of affirmation. He starts with her head and works his way down her body to where she's naked. And he's describing this woman with beauty and words of romance. He's not commanding. He's not rushing. He's not demanding or coercing. He is romancing his bride with love and adoration. It's, it's brothers and sisters, Song of Song is proving what scientists have known all along, that women's greatest sex organ generalized is their mind. <laughs> How many of you have heard women are crockpots and men are microwaves? Yeah. I mean, guys, she could say, hey, that shirt looks cute on you today. And you're like, you want to go? <laughs> Game time, you know? <laughs> I just said game time. (laughs) Oh, so it's not clinical. In a culture that confuses beauty, this guy takes his time and romances his wife and speaks to her um, her whole being. Guys, women are like symphony orchestras. If you don't, men are like one drum soloist. All we think about is the kick drum. Do you ever like, let's just get this? Yep. Drum solo, exactly. Oh, and so we have this guy who's just taking his time and speaking beauty over her, and she's naked and she's unashamed. It's beautiful, a beautiful picture. Sex is romantic. It takes time. It takes, uh, it, it takes time for the woman to simmer. If you don't know this already, I need to just make this perfectly clear. Um, that for women, for the most part, I'm speaking generally right now, when you, whether or not you do the dishes matters to whether or not you're having sex. I'm just letting you know that is part of their deal. And so we're, there's just this radical picture of romance involves all sorts of things. And this man is just speaking beauty over, to, uh, over his wife and reminding her of who she is. Um, let's keep going. And he keeps speaking. Verse 6, until the day breaks, and the shadow, uh, shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. Listen to this. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. 
uh, descend from the crest of Imana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountains, the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Verse 7, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Point number two is sex is life-giving. If you go back to chapter one, what did we discover about this woman? What did she say? Dark am I, yet lovely. She was insecure. How insecure do you think she is right now? A culture that says the whiter or paler the skin you, are, you have, the more beautiful you are. Here she lies naked for the very first time. We'll find out she's a virgin. For the very first time, and her husband doesn't even touch her. He speaks words of affirmation over her body and breathes life into her insecurity. The question is, and for her, was, am I desirable? And the first time she experienced a sexual encounter with her husband, all he does is paint her with words of affirmation and beauty. Sex is designed to be life-giving. That speaks to the deepest, darkest fears and insecurities and brings up a well of life and love. Sex is life-giving. So many of us, uh, there's such a great line. I've heard this. The definition of sexy is being comfortable in your own skin. Write that down. Sexy is being comfortable in your own skin. Naked and unashamed. You are being affirmed by um, your spouse. And this is a place where husbands, we can really do some damage if we're not careful. Do you know what I'm talking about? For many of us, we haven't experienced this type of sex or sexuality for those of us that are married or whether or not we're married and we've already engaged in this stuff. I want to say for many of us, sex is not life-giving. Sex is a battlefield. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sex, you know, when Alex and I started, uh, when we were married and we were both virgins, I've shared this um, in our experience, this was a very difficult place for us to engage. Nobody had taught us um, anything you know, except for culture. And the image that I brought in was influenced by Hollywood movies. And so uh, I didn't know some of the things that you would experience that sometimes it's going to be difficult and not as easy as you want it to be. It's not going to be as romantic. Her hair is not going to flow perfectly and I'm not going to grab the back of her neck and, you know, whatever it is that actually when I try to initiate, she's going to reject me and I feel like I'm being rejected where I had to learn how to initiate where she could say no and it wasn't a rejection of myself. Do you know what I'm talking about? And, I, and she had to learn to say no where it wasn't a rejection of me. And, and, and she, I had to learn how to initiate where it wasn't a, a, a place of me trying to get what I want. I mean, I would throw down the moves, guys. <laughs> and I have them. I'm just saying. Okay. I, 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 I'm a very sensitive guy, and I would say I'm very romantic. But I married a woman where that stuff doesn't matter. 
like, I would write these long love letters, literally quoting Song of Songs back for Valentine's Day, and like exegeting the scripture and tying it into similes from, from, uh, uh, from Shakespeare and just commenting on our beauty. And it's like she reads over it, and then she puts it in a closet, and she's like, cool, where, where are we going to eat? And it just doesn't make sense. And I'm like, you're not going to bask in the glory of everything God's giving you in me. No. Instead, I had to learn that she's more interested in the dishes being done and me being a person of my word and me being uh, uh, unhurried in the experience that it wasn't just about orgasm. It was about intimacy. And sex is about intimacy. So sex is life-giving. And I know for many of us guys uh, and gals, we, we have this, this experience, and it is not anything but life-giving. It is everything but a battlefield. And, and for those of you that are married, and any time this gets brought up, it's met with defensiveness and opposition and pain and a past. There is healing on the other side. That the way it's always been is not the way it's always going to be if you let Jesus into your sex life. You with me? Can I say that here? Is that all right? All right, let's keep going. All right, we're going to just, so point number two is sex is life-giving. And then he says, your lips, uh, verse 11, your lips drop sweetness as as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. How does he know? What kind of kissing is going on? This is in the word of God. I'm asking for a response. And it's not French because France wasn't around yet 3,000 years ago. This is Hebrew kissing. Yeah. Milk and honey. <laughs> so now he's beginning to kiss his wife and the fragrance of your garments is, is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So point number two is sex is sensual. Where else do you experience all five senses to this degree? They're not talking here about procreation. They're not talking about making babies. They're talking about lovemaking. They're talking about the pleasure and joy and celebration of two people married, exploring each other for the first time. And it is sensual. It is passionate. It is, it is amazing. It involves all the senses. You with me? All right, let's keep going. Verse 12, uh, you, are a gar- you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, and every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water, well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Okay, so this is point number four. So he's describing her, and he says that you are a garden, you are a, a, a fountain sealed up. And he's talking about, he's referring to her sexuality here. And he's saying that you, he's saying that your sexuality has been sealed up. That he's commenting on her purity. He's commenting on the fact that she's a virgin. And she, her, her sexuality is now a gift. And he's, he's all the, the language he uses of choice fruits and, and, and spices and incense. It's describing this woman's purity and sexuality. He's honoring the fact that she has practiced self-control and restraint. And that she is a woman who has kept her sexuality from the world. And now she gets to experience it in an intimate relationship. And so point number four is sex is holy. Sex is holy. And we're going to spend all of next week talking about this talk. 
So I'm going to skip over this. But point number four is sex is holy. The way God intended, to, intended it to be is a place of sacredness and holiness. Um, and so he talks about it. So there's no shame. And it's like this great picture of reversal of two women, or two women, excuse me, a man and a woman. Yep. <laughs> hey, if anyone's going to put that on YouTube, that is off limits. I've seen pastors do that. They just lose it. So anyways, moving on. A man and a woman on their wedding, wedding night, utterly clueless to their sexualities and have a lifetime to discover what, they, what pleases God in their sexuality. So God delights in a picture of two people being utterly clueless and keeping sex a holy place. You with me? That's point number four. Point, let's keep going um, in the story. So he's been speaking this whole time, and now she speaks, and she says this, Awake! Verse 16, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. We don't need to go into details. Do you get the picture of what's happening? No, do you? It is, it is odd because in school we're taught a very clinical perspective of sex, right? Like, these are how, this is how the parts work. And if you do that, it leads to, and usually it's met with consequence. And the consequence is described as babies or STDs. <laughs> and this is what I mean by a culture that teaches it that way or just says, just go for it, express yourself and have as many sexual partners as possible because that's what sexuality realize really means. That's what a healthy sex life is, but that's not true at all. Instead, we see that sex is designed for this perfect, uh, committed relationship in marriage, and we see that she says awake. Now, she's been saying, don't awaken love. And now she speaks of her sexuality and says, awaken her love. And point number five is that sex is responsive. It's mutual. Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about husbands and wives and the responsibility that you have in sexuality with each other. You're not supposed to keep each other from, keep yourselves from one another. In fact, the husband's job is to please his wife sexually, and the wife's job is to please the husband sexually. This is in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But the only way that works is if you're mutually exclusive and that you agree upon this, and it has to do with your comfortability. It has to do with your intimacy and all the other places of your relationship. You can't assume that you're going to have a great sex life if you're not communicating clearly, if you don't practice conflict resolution, if you don't look at all the other things in your life and have a spiritual intimacy. All of those things are the culmination of a sex life. Or the sex life is the culmination of all of those other things. Are you with me? And sex is responsive. So if, uh, if uh, uh, sex is romantic for women, for the most part, sex is responsive for men. That we, there are times, <laughs> there are times when, when, when the wives, they just do it as a discipline. Do you know what I'm talking about? You don't really feel like it. And there are times where that's necessary. All the single guys are like, no, that's not true. No, no. Don't tell me that, Darren. Don't break my dreams. Yes, I'm going to shatter those dreams. Every time I do premarital counseling, I have a serious conversation about the expectations of sexuality in marriage. Because we, we have to tear down the walls that the, that the world has put up 
And the expectations kill relationships. And so, so sexuality in marriage is designed to be a place where there's mutuality and responsiveness, where there is an ongoing conversation of intimacy, where even in the act of sex, there's a, a, an experimentation and pleasure and joy. I mean, sometimes I'm like, babe, I have this idea. And she's like, where do you come up with these things? And truly, but it's okay as long as it's, it's safe in marriage. You with me? From the pulpit. I'm having fun. And let's just end. We'll we'll go to verse 5. And so now we're out of the honeymoon suite in chapter 5, excuse me. We're out of the honeymoon suite. And this is what he says. And I love this because this, listen to what happens in the way he was describing her. And now what he says. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine in my milk. Nine times he says the word my. And the, the picture we have is that they are one. Sex is about oneness. Sex is about this mysterious place that as couples, we become one. And we are united in more than just a physical act of body parts. It is about our souls being bound together in intimacy. And the language is really strong in Genesis, and we're going to look at that next week about why sex is powerful. So sex is good, and sex is powerful, and it is a place, sex is romantic. Sex, let me see if I can remember these. Sex is romantic. Um, Sex is life-giving. Sex is sensual. Sex is holy. Sex is responsive, and sex is about oneness. It's where we, we celebrate this soul level of intimacy that is completely mysterious. And here he says, this is now mine. It's my garden, my sister, my bride, my myrrh. And there's a sense of a unique intimacy that takes place through the act of sex in a marriage relationship. And it takes a lifetime to discover. Are you with me? Okay, so we started out saying that we want to be able to identify the counterfeits. And when I said that real sex, anything outside of marriage isn't real sex, what I'm saying is this is the standard that God created for us. The standard is this beautiful picture of two people being naked and unashamed and experiencing this worshipful experience of pleasure and joy that is just celebration and fun. But I realized as that's the picture, most of us have fallen short. Most of us haven't experienced that. That sex is a battlefield. Sex is a place of of pain. It's a source of pain in our marriages. Or it's a place of identity and singleness. And so as as we describe the real thing, the Grand Canyon, the the non-counterfeit bills, we're being immersed in the real thing. My hope is that we become storytellers and truth-tellers about what is real. That we can spot the counterfeit as culture presses in with images and ideas and fantasies about what it could be like. And we could say, no, that's not good enough. That's not sexy enough. That's not sexual enough. That's not real sex. But we can confront a culture that forces this stuff down our throats by modeling the real thing. That's the point of today. Is that we could see it for what it really is. And hopefully invite God into this area of our lives. And the only way that 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 makes sense, guys, is if you believe that God is good. 
And here's how that plays out. Fundamentally, if you say Jesus is Lord and you are obedient with your sexuality and the ways that Scripture teach us, you are saying, I know better than God. Or God's not good enough for my sexuality. If you confess Jesus is Lord and you don't invite him to rule and lead your sexuality in a God-honoring way where these commands of waiting, until, uh, waiting for sex for marriage is not about a killjoy, it's about dealing with the real stuff. It's about fully experience all that God has for you. And every time you say no to that, you're robbing your future. And you're robbing someone else's future if you get married. And so God, if you believe God is good, then the invitation is to honor him with your sexuality. I want to land with a couple of points because I know many of us are in different places. Some of you, um, I just, let me just make a point practically too. There was two studies done, one in 1994 and then they revised it in 2001. And the study was a broad study take, taking place in America. And they wanted to know um, what the sexual attitudes were of Americans across the board, okay? And the study revealed that people in America who have the best sex are married, monogamous, religious folks. According to the study, with all the pornography that's out there, with all the, the false advertisement, with all this, the stories being done, the, the Hollywood films, with everything that says it's all about multiple partners, the study showed that people that were most satisfied in, their, in sex, with their attitude of sex, were married, monogamous, religious people. God is good. All the time. <laughs> So that's, that's just a pr another proof, or it's just a, another uh, testimony of what God, God knows exactly what he's doing. And so, um, this is just a reminder of what God calls us to. So let me close with this. Some of you are here, and uh, this whole talk is a reminder of what, had been taken, what has been taken away from you, or what you've given away at a young age, or you continue to give away. And that this is a place of pain, and this is a place of, of sorrow, and this is a place where you wonder if you'll ever have that experience. And I simply want to say that Jesus redeems, that Jesus restores, and that Jesus is the one that is in the business of restoration. And he d renews sexuality, he renews virginity, he restores the past, and he makes all things new. And if you come in here and you're just reminded of the pain and brokenness and shame, and whether it was done to you or not, or whether you gave it away freely, God will restore your story. There's a better story being told if you surrender that to him and invite him back in. For some of you, that area is an old area in your past, and it's as if you locked up that door and you just keep, you keep him out of there. And I just want to invite you to just let him in, okay? Allow for some space to let him in. Some of you are here and you're married and your sex life has become stale and dry and routine. And I want to ask you, and I'm going to be careful with this, but I want to ask you and invite you as an act of worship to rekindle your love for your spouse. As an act of worship, rekindle your love for your spouse. Now, I know this comes with baggage. I know this is going to be, this, is, this comes with a lot of stuff because most of us are here and we don't have the experience described in Song of Solomon. But the invitation this morning is to go home 
and talk about it. Part one, open up. Open up a conversation about your sexuality with honesty. Let down the walls of bitterness. Let down the walls of mistrust. Let down the walls of of defense. And come together with a heart of repentance, a heart of confession. For those of you that need to be restored in this area, and come together to discuss what it would look like for you to renew your way and rekindle your love for one another in sexual intimacy. How this is about mutuality. This isn't about jumping in and going for it. Although some of you, maybe it is, and that's good news. But some of you, this is a, this is a deep wound that needs to be bubbled up and presented to God. And based on the silence, I just want to say this too. Some of you men need to confess your addiction to pornography. And you might say, share it with your brothers, but I want to say this is about intimacy with your spouse. Because that's a source of conflict for true intimacy. You with me? Some of you are here and you're single or dating and you're living with your your boyfriend or girlfriend or you're sleeping around and I want to just call you to repent. That there's a bigger story being lived out and God invites you to a greater story. Now wait because you're robbing your future. And for those of you that have been debating whether or not this is a part of your life you want to be obedient with God about, I want to invite you just to come forward and respond with conviction. It is time to be a holy people again. We can't earn favor. The grace is done. But I think our culture needs the church to act like the church with our sexuality. It should be, we should be put on display for the world to know. And it's not because it's just a miracle one day. It's because we've disciplined ourselves and practiced self-control with things that are so natural for us because we're holding out because God said so and he's good. And I know he's got my best in mind. Some of you need that today to repent and choose purity and holiness. And I know that's scary. And let down the flesh and move forward. Are you with me? And I just want to say, because this is banging in my ear right now. Brothers, how can we lead our wives if we're married? How can we lead the church? How can we lead people to Jesus if we're addicted to pornography? This isn't a sermon of get better. This is lay it all down and surrender. You with me? May we spot the counterfeits in our culture. May we tell a better story. Let me pray. Jesus, um, on that note, it seems like every week we touch the heart of ourselves. We are confronted by the truth and we are reminded of your grace. So Jesus, I first want to ask you to pour out your grace on us this evening, this morning. Pour out your grace in this room, Jesus. There are marriages that need to be restored. There are sexualities that need to be redeemed. There are, there are individuals that need to confess and release, God, the things that they have been addicted to, that they have been in bonded in slavery to. And I just pray you break those chains this morning. God, that you would free those that have long been trapped by their own addictions and their own habits. I thank you for the biblical standard, Lord, this picture that we can strive for, that you can empower in our relationships. I pray, Lord, in all honesty, that we would be so content in our sexual lives as husbands and wives, that we would have the best sex, we'd have the most honoring sex, the most holy sex, 
and that the world would look on into us and into this church and see that you are God and you are good. And Lord, I just pray for freedom and liberation this morning to respond to what you're doing. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.